Welcome to the All Things Protest podcast. I'm Rob Sneckenberg, and I'm joined today by my co-hosts, Olivia Lynch and Christian Curran. Today, we're going to provide an update on mid-procurement key personnel departures. It's a topic we've addressed before, but one with continuing importance. For example, late last year, we discussed that where a key personnel listed in a proposal departs in the middle of a procurement, GAO is held that the offer must notify the agency. And from there, the agency has two and only two options, either eliminate the company or open discussions for all offerors. This can naturally lead to some pretty harsh results, as oftentimes key personnel departures are not the company's fault. For example, we also discussed Chenega Healthcare Services, a court protest where the incumbent program manager departed in the middle of the procurement. Even though the agency accepted a substitute program manager on the incumbent contract itself, the agency refused to accept the very same individual in an offeror's proposal, seemingly because the agency didn't want to open discussions with all offerors. Even though the departure was not the offeror's fault, there was nothing it could do. Today, Olivia and Christian are going to cover two recent GAO decisions that may finally show some ways to avoid these situations, either through carefully crafting solicitations or through securing commitments from departed personnel. Olivia, why don't you kick us off with IP Keys? So IP Keys Technologies, which was issued in late May by GAO, speaks to the question of when a key personnel requirement is material. What happened here is that following the agency's award to Bylight, IP Keys protested, arguing that the mid-procurement departure of Bylight's proposed program manager constituted a material change about which Bylight had not notified the agency. But the agency defended against the protest, and GAO ultimately agreed with its reasoning that the departure didn't constitute a material change for a number of reasons that were all based in how the solicitation was drafted. First, that the only place that key personnel were to be addressed was under a management approach subfactor, and it was really with regard to one of the five tasks in the PWS that offerers had to identify the key personnel that was going to complete that task. Then, the RFP also allowed offerers to submit generic resumes for key personnel, but it didn't require the evaluation of them. What the agency was focused on in the evaluation of the management plan was instead looking at whether the offer had proposed the appropriate mix of labor categories, labor hours, and other direct costs. Olivia, is that a common key personnel solicitation requirement, just requiring generic resumes like that? No, that's not something we've been seeing over the past few years, which I think is borne out with the number of key personnel decisions we're seeing coming out of GAO all the time. But it was what was key to GAO's decision here was that the solicitation did not require identification of specific key personnel in conjunction with submission of their resumes, and that the solicitation also did not provide for the evaluation of such information. If you're an offer competing in a procurement, how can you, if at all, try to convince an agency to get a more relaxed requirement like this? It seems like it could be very beneficial to avoid this key personnel problem. Yes, because no offers are ever able to really predict with 100% accuracy whether or not somebody is going to have a medical problem, pass away, leave the company. And so we would recommend that pre-RFP issuance, you do what you can to get this kind of proposal before the agency, whether it's through industry days, through use of the Q&A, general procurement lobbying tactics. Great. Those all sound like good recommendations and are ones that we've been passing on to our clients for the past year or so as these key personnel issues have really been cropping up. Now, Christian, why don't we turn to the next case, Netcentrics? Sure, Rob. In Netcentrics, the initial awardee actually lost the procurement due to a protest when it misrepresented its key personnel availability. 
in this case, the solicitation required offerors to submit resumes for two key personnel, one of which was the deputy program manager. And under the evaluation criteria, while the solicitation noted that it was only desired or recommended that you have a commitment letter for your key personnel, it was not a firm requirement. The solicitation also made clear that DOD could reject a quote if the offeror did not have a firm commitment from its key personnel. Now, Christian, what's the major difference there, that the firm commitment versus, like, you know, what are other options that agencies sometimes require in these types of solicitations? That's a great question. In a lot of cases, the agency will require an actual commitment letter or some other hard evidence that the person is a current employee. It looks like here the agency was trying to soften the requirement, saying that as long as you have some sort of firm commitment, you don't necessarily need to go the extra mile in having a letter. So that may be one way the agency was trying to make it easier for the offeror, but it turned out to create a situation here that ended up backfiring against the initial awardee. So how did that end up backfiring? So when NetCentric submitted its initial quote, its program manager was still an employee. But between the time of its initial quote and its revised quote that was submitted in response to additional questions from the agency, that key personnel left the company. And NetCentrics didn't update their proposal with regard to that person. They left the resume in. They didn't change anything in the staffing approach. It just seemed as if they were still going to propose that person for the deputy program manager role as if that person was still there. And that's what ended up resulting in their award being rescinded because DOD found that the individual had actually left the company and that NetCentrics's failure to update its proposal was actually a misrepresentation. So Christian, wasn't there, from reading the decision, didn't they have an indication that the individual would still be available though? So there was no contemporaneous evidence in the proposal that the person was still available, and that was really the problem. During the protest, NetCentrics came back with declarations from both the individual and folks at the company saying that the person intended to come back if the award was made, and that individual also confirmed that. But DOD keyed in on the fact that this was kind of post hoc analysis, and there was nothing that showed that they had a firm commitment at the time. And so the GAO found that that decision was reasonable, that they had made a misrepresentation, that the person, they had no firm commitment as required by the solicitation. So is the main takeaway here that if you have someone who's departing and if you're able to obtain a commitment letter or an agreement that they'll return, really the key is the timing that you should get that contemporaneously before they depart, if at all possible, or just, you know, as early as possible to ensure that you can demonstrate that that person, you know, would be willing to come back. Absolutely. If you know that somebody's going to leave or you don't have advance notice, but as they're on their way out the door, you can get some sort of commitment from them that puts you in a much better position. I mean, it all depends on the solicitation criteria, but in this case, it seems as if had they gotten a commitment letter from this guy on his way out and updated their proposal, that would have resolved the concern here. One last question here. You mentioned that the agency still exercised its discretion to eliminate the offeror, but had the agency gone the other way, do you think GAO might have come out differently here? It's hard to say, Rob. Although GAO normally defers to the agency in matters of discretion like this, and there was some record evidence that could have led the agency to say, well, this guy did say he intended to come back, and although it's not contemporaneously documented, we think that that's reasonable. It's really hard to tell which way it would go at that point. 
I think it really depends on the timing. I mean, certainly something contemporaneous is going to put you on much better footing than a rationale that may be viewed later as inconsistent. Got it. So from Netcentrics, really emphasizing the importance of getting commitments and getting them in a timely fashion, and from IP keys earlier, the importance of as much as possible advocating for less restrictive solicitation requirements to hopefully avoid these key personnel problems. So we'll continue to monitor this area of the law for further developments, and we'll keep you guys abreast on future podcasts and future blogs. In the meantime, thanks for listening. The All Things Protest podcast is brought to you by Kroll & Mooring LLP. You can find more information at kroll.com slash allthingsprotest.